One of the things that's made it challenging is that the criteria for implantation has changed over time. There are more people who are potentially eligible for it based on the criteria that's in the package inserts with the devices and all that. And some people just haven't kept up with what those changes are. There are 466 million people living with disabling hearing loss across the globe. And despite growing clinical evidence of the benefit of cochlear implantation in adults, it is still sometimes seen as a last resort. Welcome to this episode of Hearing Health Today. I'm your host, Craig Sharp. In this episode, we'll speak with Associate Professor Holly Teagle from the University of Auckland in New Zealand and explore how we can address the growing hearing loss epidemic. We'll also gain a broader perspective on why treatment guidelines and a standard of care for hearing loss are so crucial when we hear from two additional experts in the field, Dr. Leo DeRave, Scientific Advisor of the European Association of Cochlear Implant Users, and Associate Professor Robert Briggs, Head of Otology and Medical Director of the Cochlear Implant Clinic at the Royal Victorian Ear Hospital in Australia. This is a podcast for hearing health professionals. If you are a person with hearing loss or a member of the general public, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Joining us now is Holly Teagle, the Clinical Director of Audiology and Habilitation at the Hearing House in Auckland, New Zealand, with a dual appointment as Associate Professor at the University of Auckland School of Population Health. Well, Holly, thanks for joining us on Hearing Health today. Nice to be with you. Thanks for asking me. Absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure to speak with you. So we always start the podcast by just asking uh, where the interviewees are currently speaking to us from. Well, I am in my office at Grafton in the university building that uh, University of Auckland Department of Audiology is housed in. You don't sound Kiwi, so I wanted to <laughs> sort of get your perspective of um, how you ended up in uh, New Zealand. Oh my. Well, um, um, no, I'm not Kiwi. I've been here about two years. Right. Yeah. So just, um, it was a time of life and a good opportunity collided. I came here to be, to be clinical director of the hearing house and then also do some teaching and research with the university. One thing that I've always wondered about the hearing loss space is that the WHO projects that there's over 450 million people with disabling hearing loss. And a lot of those folks could be um, benefited by a cochlear implant, but it seems like the penetration of cochlear implants is just stubbornly low, and it's really hard to get that penetration a little bit higher. was curious to get your thoughts and perspectives on, on why the industry has really struggled to uh, increase the rate of cochlear implantation for those patients who would benefit from it. Well, you know, it's good to always to think about the positive first. And the positive is that, that cochlear implants for children yeah. is well penetrated. And we're doing a really good job, mm -hmm. I think, globally, pretty much, at um, providing children with device cochlear implants when they need them. So so that's really good. And there is, we do, um, I think, are meeting the standard of care for children. Um, it is a different story for adults. And unfortunately, a lot of it um, has to do with funding. Um, and not that's true in New Zealand, it's true in the U.S. as well. Um, but there's also, um, so that's part of it, but there's also a problem with awareness and understanding what the benefits are. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the lack of awareness um, about what's possible, I think. We'll go back to Holly in New Zealand shortly, but I want to bring in two experts from other parts of the world to get their perspective on the difference between pediatric and adult access to cochlear implantation. First, we're going to head to Europe and hear from Dr. Leo DeRave. In most countries uh, in Europe, 
pediatric cochlear implantation is going very well. I, I mean, we have most countries now universal hearing screening and uh, they are um, uh, referred to the cochlear implant teams further on. So let's say in general, this is working well. And for instance, uh, I come from Belgium and in, in Belgium, more than 90% of our deaf kids um, receive cochlear implants of which the a high number uh, before the age of 18 months. Yeah. Now, if you compare that with adults, it's totally different. In, in uh, for instance, Belgium and the Netherlands, we know that when we look at the, the candidature, uh, those who are candidates for cochlear implants, that in adults, this is less than 10%. Yeah. Uh, so it's a huge difference comparing to the pediatric population. We have to focus much more on the adult population. There are different reasons for that, of course. Uh, one important reason is, of course, also money. Yeah. So if you just have one euro and you have to spend it, do you spend it to a newborn child or do you spend it to an elderly person? Yeah. If you have to make that choice, money goes to the child. So it has to do with money, but much more than money, especially awareness. Awareness. Um, Let's say start with the awareness of professionals. Uh, professionals, um, I think about um, audiologists, uh, um, local ENT doctors, uh, general practitioners. These people um, have to be informed about what is possible today with cochlear implants. Yeah, and what will happen if these patients are not treated by a cochlear implant. Yeah? We know that a hearing loss in fact is going to, to have impact on, on a lot of things which um, are involved in, in quality of life. Yeah? Not only on, on speech perception, but also on um, uh, social functioning. You have more chance to, to get isolated. Uh, there's more chance to, to lose your job, um, more chance to go for uh, depression. Um, even um, the brain is stimulated less, and, and so it can impact even your cognitive function, and, and there's m even more chance to go to dementia. Yeah. So um, yeah, let's say if, you, if there is little or no auditory input, it's influencing the brain, yeah? and, and the brain is connected to uh, a lot of other functions. So it's really a kind of, yeah, I call it a kind of domino effect that you create if you're not treating hearing loss. And now let's hear from Associate Professor Robert Briggs from the Royal Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital in Australia. I think for the Australian-New Zealand market, whilst we have internationally quite a high rate of penetration for cochlear implants, it's still lower than it should be. And again, I think this comes down to largely awareness in the general population and also among the, the hearing health professionals who are uh, often are unaware of the current candidacy and so having appropriate guidelines will make a big difference. We know that there's uh, a lot of uh, potential recipients who are unaware of the benefit of uh, cochlear implantation uh, and uh, also uh, hearing professionals who don't refer or are unaware of the benefits of referring and uh, so I think they should be reassured that cochlear implants are remarkably effective uh, and that uh, the surgery is very straightforward and uh, nothing to be afraid of. And now let's go back to Holly in New Zealand. Have you seen anything be effective in, in helping boost the awareness uh, for cochlear implantation in adults? Well, you know, I think one of the things that's been, um, that's made it challenging is that the, the criteria for implantation has changed over time. You know, when you think about it, the industry is about, it's about 30 years old. And when it was first 
you know, came on the scene. It was investigational and took some years to amass, um, you know, a good, uh, a good bunch of data that was really supportive of outcomes. And then over time, the criteria has opened up so that there are more people who um, are potentially candidates or sort of are, are, are eligible for it based on the criteria that's in the package inserts with the the devices and all that. Um, and I think some people just haven't kept abreast of what those changes are. So these changes in yeah. technology have a knockdown effect and create changes in candidacy. And mm-hmm. some people just haven't kept up with, with what those changes are. So, you know, the devices that we have today, the, the CI devices that are available mm-hmm. today, um, are, are really quite amazing in terms of all the additional thing. And, and so in, in addition to yeah. just creating good hearing, there's streaming functions and, and all that. So I think there's, there's, we need to really increase awareness, just awareness, not just around the fact that you could hear better, but you can hear better in a lot of different environments and, and then all the other secondary quality of life um, benefits that come along with better hearing and better communication. So it's messaging. We need to do some more messaging um, and get people up to speed. And how about like direct to patient or direct to candidate communications, I guess, is there like an opportunity for improvement there? And I guess, who do you think sort of would be most effective at, at conveying that information? Well, I think in New Zealand, it seems to me that, again, we take really good care of our children. And then as adults get older, they may seek out private care for their hearing needs. And there may not be sort of a coordinated effort or coordinated message among audiologists, or simply people just aren't getting those referrals to see an audiologist. So, so you know, if, a, if, a, if an adult sees their GP only when they're ill and, and doesn't, you know, go every year, doesn't, you know, doesn't have a good routine of, 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 of quality health care follow-up, um, they may not ever get identified as having a, a loss that could be, you know, impacted by hearing technologies. And so, um, so I think, again, it's about messaging and about people knowing. And, and I think, um, you know, in any situation, you have to have support from your family and friends and to, to also say, you know, why don't you go in and have your hearing test or I think you're having troubles or, you know, encouraging people to investigate. Is there a way that they could have improved hearing? And one thing that um, I've also heard thrown around is people often talk about hearing loss not being medicalized. Um, what does that mean? Sort of what do people mean when they say that? Yeah, well, you know, it, hearing loss is typically related with aging. Um, mm-hmm. Most most forms of hearing loss is. And it's considered a um, invisible handicap because, you know, yeah. you don't, you know, look at people and mm-hmm. say, oh, you have hearing loss. Um and so, so it might be that, um, I mean, that, that, that could be part of that, that medicalized point of view. You know, if you don't have a, have a clear pathology, you know, you don't have an ear infection or you don't have a tumor, you don't have, you know, yeah. a surgical issue, mm-hmm. you just have hearing loss that's secondary to aging, which is very normal and, and natural, then it may not have, it may not get that sort of medical label put on it. And if it doesn't have a medical label, then then there may be people don't see it as something as treatable or as easily treated. 
I wanted to go back to something you said earlier that I thought was um, really striking. So you said that for the most part, the industry, the community is doing a good job catching pediatric patients that have hearing loss, but perhaps not as good of a job on on adults. And I'm just curious around that referral pathway, why is that easier for children and a little bit more challenging for adults? Many, many countries. I, I mean, I've gotten, have recognized that newborn hearing screening protocols are, mm-hmm. are really making a difference in terms of early intervention, getting children access to hearing technologies when they need them earlier. And then that has a cascading impact on their speech and language, their academic, social, vocational, all those things. Um, and so because we have the newborn hearing screening and then in New Zealand, we have a sort of a before uh, a before school screening program as well as do a lot of other countries. So you're really your opportunities to pick up early childhood hearing loss are pretty good. And also if you've got a regular schedule of intervention with a pediatrician where you're doing well child checks, usually there's questions around that. So, so, you know, when we get Mm -hmm. to be adults, we just don't get to, we don't get to have well adult checks um, maybe as often as we should. Yeah. Is there a place for, I guess, maybe like an adult standard of care or sort of some more defined set of protocols for adults that would help alleviate that? Yeah, well, I think it's it, it. I think we need to attack it from a lot of different angles. So it needs to be kind of a grassroots effort in that we need to, to that people to know that if they're having trouble, there's technologies that can help them. But then we also need to go to all of the other medical care providers or associated professionals, you know, nurses, OTs, you know, PTs, Mm -hmm. whoever, whoever is, are seeing aging, the aging population, really gerontologists and, and make sure that they have all the information and knowledge that they need. So, you know, there are, there are support groups um, for, for people with hearing loss. And, you know, most of the people that are involved in those are already pretty tuned in. That's why they belong to the organization they care yeah. and they, and they, <laughs> they've sort of discovered better hearing through technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they can be great um, avenues of information for other people too. And so just, you know, having, having social functions and, you know, media events and things like that, um, just to call attention to it. It's yeah. another, another way, I think, to help. Hearing loss is associated with aging, as are a lot of other chronic conditions. Where do you think hearing loss sits sort of in the hierarchy of, of different conditions that like a gerontologist or a primary care provider might be screening for in that um, age population? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, you know, I think that we, you know, we, we look at things like blood pressure and cholesterol and, you know, a lot of the metabolic changes that we know happen with mm-hmm. aging. Um And vision, of course, is a real obvious one. You know, there's oftentimes um, there's screening for visions. We don't, you don't get your driver's license if you don't have, sometimes if you don't have a a vision screening or pass (laughs) that test. So it's, for some reason, it's just hearing just hasn't been weighted as highly. And and it's not universally. I do think there are some GPs and gerontologists who will prioritize and, and ask about it, but then I just don't know if it ha- the next step happens where they get referred and evaluated and, you know, that there's actually a action. Are you aware of efforts by, I guess, professional bodies or countries or maybe even patient advocacy groups to, to make that a little bit more formal, sort of what that, that process might be? There's been a lot of talk around that. And I think the, 
evidence for the need for that is definitely mounting. And it could be something as simple as a, you know, a, a five-point questionnaire that a um, physician would, would ask. Do you have trouble on the phone? Do you have trouble hearing from a distance? If you don't see someone's face, can you understand what the message is? You know, just some of those kinds of questions are good yeah. screening questions. It's interesting you say that. I, I actually used to work in um, obstetrics uh, and in postnatal care. I think one thing that occurred when, when I was working with a, a large practice group back in the States is that we introduced sort of a, a five-point questionnaire for um, postpartum depression mm. as part of... Um, every postpartum visit, which wasn't standard before, but now I think is quite routine. How do you think COVID might affect adults, specifically uh, seeking access to care for for hearing loss? You know, that's really interesting, I think. Um, You know, because depending on our situations and being in bubbles, Mm -hmm. right, because we've had to self-isolate, some people, I think it has really kind of brought them to front of mind that when you are alone, and you don't have a lot of communication partners, um, mm-hmm. life can get kind of sad and lonely. And um, and I think it does sort of, it, it, it makes you realize that when you don't have face-to-face personal contact with people, you know, your, your quality of life goes down. And people compensate when they have hearing loss, they compensate by, by getting closer and lip reading and having more sort of close contact. And so I wonder if there won't be people that, have been having gone through the the lockdown and the everything associated with with COVID that they're not feeling a little bit isolated and lonely, and um and yeah. and and sort of that's been compounded by the fact that they have hearing loss. You know, we can only hope that when people do get comfortable and are are back out and life returns to normal, that that maybe they will follow up on some of those things. I'm curious in in the hearing house, do you guys see folks all the way from mild hearing loss? through to uh, severe and profound? Or, or do you guys mainly focus on the, the severe to profound? Yes. So it's, yeah. So we're, we're definitely a referral center for severe to profound. So okay. most, yeah, we wouldn't be seeing folks for with milder levels unless it was in the other ear. Um, so we do have, uh, a lot of our adults do continue to wear hearing aids in the opposite ear. And so we will, you know, monitor and manage those as well. But, but typically it's just CI recipients. Have you seen a particular set of clinic guidelines or clinical guidelines that have worked well, um, either in your current role in New Zealand or, or somewhere else that that really does sort of help inform that referral pathway? I saw something recently um, from a talk that was uh, from the U.S. that talked about a 60-60 guideline. Basically, it was referring to you know, 60% word understanding and, and a pure tone average is 60 dB. And, um, you know, so it kind of is a, as a screening uh, tool. So it, that's mm-hmm. something that, that I think is a, is a good short shortcut to who might be a candidate. So, um, you know, I, I thought that was, I thought that was a good, a good tool. What does sort of candidacy criteria look like? Like how complicated could it be? So if you were uh, referring um, professional, either a an audiologist that primarily treats hearing aid patients, or like a gerontologist or a, a primary care provider. Like, is is it something based in its current form that would be like challenging to to really know all the ins and outs? And maybe we need to look for something simpler, or or yeah. actually, it is it could be quite simple. Well, I think if you if you just think about rather than looking at like what the candidacy criteria is for 
you know, a certain country or a certain device or whatever, mm-hmm. if you just think about it is one way is thinking about it is would this person do better with a cochlear implant or a hearing aid? You know, you have yeah. someone with known hearing yeah. loss and would they, which would they do better with? And if with hearing aids, they're, they're wearing them, they're understanding speech, they're communicating, they're enjoying Mm-hmm. life they're listening to television they're hearing you know for the most part they're they're functioning well and they um they have good quality of life then you know you feel pretty good about them continuing wearing their hearing aids and you know everyone um or most people who have hearing aids would have regular assessments and if there were change you know then you could you can make adjustments but but i think some of those just that basic question is 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 your hearing are you able to do what you want to do with the current hearing that you have? And if the answer is no, if you're not able to yeah. understand well and communicate well and enjoy music and enjoy television and theater and all those things, then, then, you know, there's potential that, that you, you should be, you should be evaluated and see if, if there's a, a solution. Um, not everyone that comes to the hearing house walks out with a cochlear implant um, yeah. even if there were no waiting list, because there's some people who haven't maybe maximized the fitting of their hearing aid and the other sure. assistive technologies that might be available to them. We want to refer people so that they know about it. They know it's there. It's a safety net. If it's not appropriate now, it might be later. But, you know, not everyone's going to actually meet the candidacy requirements um, that's based on their ability to repeat words and sentences um, That's that's mostly what it is is just those kinds of audio audiologic speech perception tests is what we rely on so that's sort of something interesting that you just said that uh, you'd encourage refers to refer people that might not be ready for a cochlear implant yet but maybe would be sort of in six months or a year to just sort of get them familiar with the the process and, and what this could look like well, and there's there's data that suggests that most people are a candidate for up to 15 years they, they, before they actually wow. get in the door of a CI center. So I don't think we would be jumping huh. the gun if we encouraged people yeah. to, to go and find out about it um, sooner than they, I- they might think. Yeah. So then in some cases, when someone is referring someone, I guess, earlier than they normally would, they might actually be referring them sort of at the appropriate time for a, a cochlear implant then. Yeah, could be. You know, yeah, people people with hearing loss get so, some people with hearing loss get very good um, at adapting. You know, you're hearing, you know, you may have a sudden hearing loss where you go from good hearing to poor hearing, but in, in general, it's more likely that you're going to have a, a decline in hearing over yeah. time and you, you adapt to it. You know, you, you, use other behaviors and other strategies to kind of compensate. And so I think some people don't, maybe not, you don't appreciate how, how much trouble someone's having until you get them in a test situation where there's not visual clues, you know, to help them understand. Yeah. I know. It's like, I used to be a really fast runner. I'm no longer a fast runner, but I don't notice it until I look at the times that I actually (laughs) compare the same route. What do you think is one thing that would make the single biggest difference in hearing healthcare around the world. Specifically, we, if we're looking at this with a frame of how do we get more people to get the appropriate level of treatment? You know, if, if you could wave a magic wand and say, 
there was one wish <laughs> that you got uh, to to help improve access and awareness to uh, hearing healthcare. What do you think would make the um, the biggest impact? Oh goodness, um, one thing. See, I think it's it's again, it's not a simple problem. It's there are multiple mm -hmm. needs around it. Um, so yeah, you know, raising awareness, uh, funding, um, understanding and appreciation for what the technology can do and how sophisticated and and yet simple it can be to use. Um, I don't have one thing. Sorry, Craig. I can't think of okay. one thing. I mean, it's, 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 uh, I think it's, um, yeah, the message is awareness. I suppose that's the one thing, awareness. Yeah. I believe that you do some work with an organization called Pindrop. Is that correct? I've, I have, yes. Could you, uh, I guess for the benefit of, of the listeners around the world, explain a little bit more about Pindrop and sort of their uh, mission? Yeah. The, so Pindrop Foundation is an advocacy group. Um, for adults who have hearing loss and and their primary goals are to increase access to hearing technologies, um, mostly cochlear implants. So they've they've um, been active in New Zealand, I think for for many years. Um, and they they do work with um, ministry and and you know try to try to bring mm -hmm. the issue to the forefront with media and, you know, doing different things like webinars. And um, so that's, you know, we, we do have, have this advocacy group. Um, but I think, you know, I think, I think there's more that we could do. I know that the CI centers, there's the Southern Cochlear Implant Program, um, as well as then the Hearing House. And we all have, you know, very satisfied people who are living better lives. And um, we need to encourage them also to be, mm -hmm. to be out there. And, um, and, and, and that's happening. Um, the hearing house has an advisory consumer advisory group and we're, we're listening to them and trying to, to work with them and find ways to raise awareness. We've done something, the loud shirt day has been an event that's been, oh, what is, what's loud shirt day? An awesome a event. About that. Yeah. So it's a loud shirt day is an event that's been going on for many years here and, and it's, um, you the you it's exactly what it sounds like you wear a very loud shirt colorful <laughs> colorful shirt um but it, it's it's a huge fundraising event and it's been centered around okay. um children but um now at the hearing house we've okay. we've aligned our uh, adult and children we're all under one roof now and so um we're still okay. doing loud shirt day but it's not just for children it's for children and adults so a lifespan program to raise funds for kiwis who need cochlear implants do you have a particularly favorite loud shirt that you go to i have one yes i do the <laughs> <laughs> right. mandatory purchase yeah if you're going to be in part yeah. of loud shirt day you've got to make a statement and yeah. get a good one yeah i like that loud shirt day that's a really great um initiative so maybe for folks around the world where there isn't a loud shirt day, they can uh, <laughs> learn, learn from the Kiwis uh, and implement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I, I was, uh, since, you know, it's all over the news uh, these days, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, just curious about what uh, advice uh, you might have for other hearing care professionals that are um, trying to treat patients and keep up with their patients during this pandemic? 
Yeah, the, there have been really good guidelines that have been developed by the New Zealand Audiological Society and the ministries of health have also offered good guidelines. Mm-hmm. The hearing house was considered an essential service because we had it was important that people remain on the air with their hearing so that they could know yeah. what was happening when, when um, announcements were happening about what where the state of things were relative to COVID. So, um, so you know, I, I guess I would just reassure people that audiologists, um, as you know, healthcare providers are taking the same kinds of precautions that they're going to see in other medical settings where we're, you know, doing all the hand washing and gowns and masks and um, and distancing yeah. when we can. It's kind of challenging to distance when you need to look in someone's ear, but um, yeah. you, you know, there's a, there are a lot of precautions in place, and I and I, I would hope that that people could, you know, when they're comfortable, get back get 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 back into the clinic and and get the audiology care that they need. What's the most important thing that you've learned throughout your time working in hearing healthcare? Well, it's been amazingly rewarding and um, satisfying career for me. So just personally, um, it's been so great to be part of the lives of people and children and adults and see how their lives can improve with better hearing. And, you know, when you watch a a baby who you know is deaf, learn to talk and it's amazing. So, you know, communication in itself is such a a vital part of being human. in human relationships. And um, when you don't have good communication, um, life's just not as good. Well, Holly, it's been a pleasure uh, to speak with you today. And we really appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to join us on Hearing Health Today. Well, you're so very welcome. It's been wonderful to be talking with you. And thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed it, please make sure you press the subscribe button and give us a rating and a review. If there's a particular topic you'd like us to cover, please mention it in your review. We'd love to hear from you. You can find all the links to what was discussed in today's podcast in the description and stay tuned for our next episode. In the meantime, stay safe. Just a quick reminder, the views of the interviewees in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Cochlear Limited or its subsidiaries. This material is intended for health professionals. If you are a consumer, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Outcomes may vary and your health professional will advise about the factors which could affect your outcome.